and I'm Carl Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And uh, this week we're reading Stafford Beer. We're reading his book, uh, Designing Freedom, which um, is, is it a book or is it a set of lectures? <laughs> or both? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was um, a set of lectures, uh, part of the Massey Lecture Series that the CBC has done, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company has done since uh, 1961. Uh, this was the 1973 uh, Massey Lecture, um, and it has been adapted into a book with like some additional notes at the end of each lecture uh, to help the reader understand uh, what beer is going on about. But uh, fundamentally, it's written uh, to be spoken, right? Yeah, Um why are we reading this? We're reading it because it's the shortest of all of Stafford Beer's books, and most of yeah. his books are. <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to get around to um, Brain of the Firm on this show. It is, it is simply too much to tackle. However, most of the ideas, the fundamental ideas at least, uh, show up here. Um, it's, I, I think it's a pretty good intro to Stafford's thought, right? Like, and his, the, 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 the problems he was trying to tackle, and, uh, and the, the basics of the techniques. Yeah, I think um, outside of uh, the Pickering chapter on beer, uh, it's it's like it, you know it's an intro to beer written by beer, right? Um, that has that advantage to it. Um, if, if if you want the 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 overview of beer's thought and career, I think going reading the cybernetic brain is is the place to go. But if you want to sort of get a sense of beer in his own words, um, this is a really good place to start. Yeah, certainly. Um... And that's it. That's why we're reading it. I think it'll be it'll be tough to to ever get around to um, to reading one of the the longer ones. Um, so there are there are six lectures. Um, they're you know they're pretty short, and they've got these nice little pictures at the end. Um, I think it's it's a sort of an odd mix of being um, pretty easy to read, especially because it's given in a lecture format. It's um, he's trying to get stuff across, right? Like he's trying to do this um, pedagogical sort of thing of. Uh, Teaching, teaching you what he's what he's going on about. It suffers a little bit for the length. Um, it's some of the concepts are actually kind of hard to grasp if you've not really been um, been following them so far. Uh, but you know, you, could, you you can't win them all, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think um, you know it's important not only that these are lectures, but that. Um, as far as I remember, the broadcast schedule that they do of the Massey Lectures, there's uh, always five of them, or sorry, uh, six of them in this case, is that they're spaced out by a week between um, between broadcasts. And also, because it's radio, you can't assume that people uh, have heard the first lecture or the second lecture, right? Like, people may be coming to the lecture series in the middle of it. Um, and so there is a certain amount of, like, catching up the audience uh, and repeating con uh, concepts that come through, or at least an effort to do so um, for the radio format that maybe muddies up the clarity a little bit more than if it had just been a short book. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, having said that, it's still, still really good stuff. Um, and, uh... and I, I, I think if the listeners are interested, it's also possible to like get, the lectures on uh, at least on CD from the CBC 
Um, so you can actually listen to Beer deliver these lectures as opposed to reading the book. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, need, I need to check that out then. Um, but yeah, I suppose we might as well just dive straight in. Um, uh, first lecture is titled The Real Threat to All We Hold Most Dear. Um, and it opens with Beer kind of re- recounting this experience of the, the coast of Chile uh, with this little little cottage he was spending some time at and the, the sort of majestic waves rolling in the bay and crashing over the rocks and all this sort of stuff. Um, and he's clearing his head, right? And he's appreciating getting away from the, um, the pace, the pressure, the complexity, the activity of modern life. Um, and in reflecting on this, he's going to like that, well, all, all that sort of rapidity and pressure and all this kind of chaos is, is kind of structural, right? Like it's, it's in the structure of the economy, the structure of the institutions. Um, and in particular, like as, that like human life has got more complex recently, like compared to where it was in the pretty recent past. Um, and that he is, he shares the doubts that a lot of us have about like the kind of fitness for purpose of a lot of these institutions and the kind of machine, the social machinery that we live in. Um, that it doesn't doesn't seem to be actually working anymore, basically, <laughs> um, which is a, a sense we all get. I mean, he got this sense in 1973, and I mean, oh boy, <laughs> 2018 has not been kind either. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, of course, this is a this is a significant time that he's delivering these lectures, right? Because it is it is just after uh, Pinochet's coup, overthrowing the Allende government. Um, and, uh, you know, talking about systems that have not worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he certainly has had his, uh, his fairly personal experience with uh, <clears throat> organizational failure and collapse. Um, and, and just the, the uh, immediate past. Um, and, you know, like, yeah, he, he's giving this example of the waves, right? The waves on the ocean and... Uh, how they're a dynamic system in catastrophe. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's pretty resonant given, mm-hmm. uh, given what he's just been through and what Chile has just been through. Oh, very much so, yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing he begins from here is that, like, kind of asking the question of why is it that, like, our social institutions seem to be in, in chaos and collapse. And um, one of the reasons that he gives is that we... We view institutions as entities, like singular entities, but we should really be viewing them as dynamic systems, as like interrelated parts and connections um, and so on, and that we're, we're kind of usually not actually accustomed to thinking in that kind of way. And the, the, the analogy with the waves then is that if you look at the waves in the bay, each wave appears to be a singular object that has these characteristics of like, um, you know, it's made of water, it's got a shape to it, there's a little white crest at the top and that sort of thing. However, that apparent entity, the apparent singular entity, is actually the output of a dynamic system hidden beneath the waves. And crucially, the white crest at the top of the wave that you're seeing is not a kind of, it's it's not to be taken as like a, a defining characteristic of the wave. It's actually a sign of doom because those white crests only develop when the wave is about to hit the shore. You know, and it, it's it's like he's asking you to look beneath the appearance of the thing, look beneath the individual entity and see the sprawling, resonant processes and systems beneath it that that give rise to the thing that's um, that's it. That's apparent in your experience. Right. Um, 
and it's it's instability, right? Like the the, the wave is becoming unstable as it approaches the shore. Uh, the little white crest appears, gives that little sign of turbulence, and it's you know just doom, really. Um, and this this is like and there's a resonance there, right? Like this there's like this wave instability um, and social instability. Um, yeah, and you know he's. Uh it's also sort of a cautionary thing that he is saying there, right? Is that we, we can look out from our little cottage on the coastline at the waves, um, and see them as these like very happy little things. Right. Um, but, uh, from a different point of view, uh, they're actually doomed, right? There, there's a, there's a catastrophe there. So it is, you know, he's kind of saying the same thing about, Society or social institutions, right? Is that um, they can seem, from an unexamined perspective, to be more stable than they actually are, or be, to be functioning better than they actually are, or to be more impressive than they actually are, uh, if you don't look beneath that output uh, to what the dynamics of the system involved are, and then you can recognize something different. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the, the point he moves on to is that, like, there, there's a difference between the two in that uh, waves are, you know, they're not, they're, they're dynamic, but they're not viable. The, the wave isn't destined to go on forever. Um, it sort of, you know, more or less is going to run aground or it's going to collapse in some kind of way. It's just in the, the nature of what waves are. But um, this, this, this word viable is important, right? Like that, that viable systems are systems that adapt and survive, that they have, they have a kind of continuing identity in time. And they, they can collapse, they can go away, they can diminish and fade out, or they can rejuvenate, they can, they can go in all sorts of different directions. But there is that um, notion of viability as the continued ongoing existence and continued ad- adaptation of the thing. Um, and that, like, our, our institutions are, like, I mean, as the title of the lecture says, like, they, they, they enshrine everything we, we hold most dear, right? Like, we do, we do actually kind of like our institutions and a lot of the effects they have. Well, some of them, you know, <laughs> we're, we are sort of fond of this, like, you know, freedom bit. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, especially us Marxists tend to be pretty down on most, if not all institutions in contemporary society. But, you know, there's, there's something to like about a lot of them. <laughs> there's, 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 there, there is, there is an investment in them, right? Like, like we, we do actually like to live in a modern society and, and that, but like, when these things are threatened, right, that, like, the usual apo- approach is to reinforce the institution, right? This is the retrenchment and the kind of reaction you kind of get, um, get so often, right, to, uh, to, the, to the encroaching threat. But um, Stafford's making the point here that that's a mistake. Like, that's, that's entity thinking. That's thinking in terms of the singular, the singular entities. Um, and we should, we should instead be thinking in terms of what are these things and are, how are they outputs of underlying systems or clusters of systems? Yes. Um, yeah. And, and this is not like a purely analytical process, right? Like it's not just about breaking the institution down into component parts. Um, it is, it is also a uh, more kind of like holistic or uh, dialectical approach of systems thinking or process thinking to see how these these elements or component processes of the system function on each other and make up an entity. Um, so, yeah, so it's not just saying, like, oh, well, to really understand a thing, you need to chop it all up. Um, th- that's not what he's saying. 
he's he's saying that like yeah there's there's the apparent entity um but there are also processes that make it up and we need to understand both of those things yeah and um and crucially that like the the entity can also be the the result of combinations of hidden processes that um the the entity can the entity contains processes but it can also be um something that arises as the result of essentially unknowably complex interactions between um processes that are happening slightly out of sight like like with the wave right like there's there's fluid dynamics and there's turbulence and stuff beneath the surface that just isn't apparent from the surface at all and we need to be thinking in these these sorts of terms and stafford sort of touches on this point here that like when we're trying to understand systems and organizations and institutions we often reach for this um usual hierarchical org chart right to understand things like oh the ceo is up here and then his lieutenants are beneath them and then blah 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 and that that it's great for apportioning blame but it doesn't actually describe the function of the organization um, right yeah it, that's right um it, it is it's a kind of like very bad analysis <laughs> very <laughs> uh like breaking it all like oh the answer to uh entity thinking is to make more entities Right. Like that, that's not what he's saying. Right. Like he's not saying, oh, well, you know, um, uh, in order to uh, understand an organization, you just need to understand all of the departments of the organization. No, um, it, 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 it tells you very little because that, that is uh, that is this kind of entity thinking, not process thinking. Yeah, you, you need to understand the interconnections and the the circuits and the flows and the feedback and all that sort of stuff. It's a um, it's a much richer way of uh, looking at and as at, at organizations and institutions. Um, but that's that's kind of that's part of this diagnosis, right? That we we generally don't think in these sorts of terms, and it shows because our institutions are kind of on the brink of collapse. <laughs> it's you know, but to demonstrate, like this is where we start to get into like using examples and kind of little sketches and you know models to try and explain some of the underlying concepts here. Um, and Stafford starts with this, <laughs> like what what is on paper a rather baffling analogy until you see the drawing. Um, at the back of the chapter. Um, yeah, and I, I can't imagine how this must have been received on radio. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> so the, the analogy is to um, a sort of a ball and rope and poles and people sort of thing. So we, be, we begin by imagining, um, you know, two poles with people sitting on top of them, and they're holding a rope between them, you know, facing each other. And from the middle of the rope, you have a small little string, and there's a ball at the end of the string. So it's... Um, it's hanging down halfway between them. Um, and, you know, there, there'll be little disturbances as they wiggle the, the rope back and forth. Um, and the, the ball will move around um, in, this, in the middle. And it's, it's crucial to understand that the position of the ball at any given time is the output of this system. And its internal state is that of the two people sitting on the poles and the, the position of the rope. Um, there'll be there'll be a bit of jostling, you know, and a bit of instability, but eventually the ball will settle down uh, to a relatively stable uh, position. Um, but you know, there are really too many um, there are too many possible states of this system, right, to, for it to be easily regulated. Um, there's going to be there's too much variety. That's the the, the term that's introduced here, um, where variety is the number of possible states a system can have. So an, an example might be uh, traffic lights, where 
if you think about the traffic lights, there are four states. There's off, and then red, orange, and green. I haven't seen a traffic mm-hmm. light in ages. Is that, is that the way they're light up? Um, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. So there's there's only there's only four states, and uh, and for the 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 people that are you know of the computer science bend, you realize that like four states can be fit into two bits, right? Like, and it's it's a measure of the uh, variety of the thing. Um, dice, another decent example that like a, a six sided dice has six possible states, a twenty sided dice has twenty possible states. So we would say we would say that they have variety of 20 for a d20 or a variety of six and that like two d20s together has a variety of 20 squared that like 10 of them has 20 to the power of 10 and so on um yeah just a measure of 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 uh, of the the possible states but it's a, it's a very important thing to get because it's a kind of a proxy for complexity um and a it's a measure of the possibility of the system and then if, if you're if you're if you're going to be trying to regulate systems you're going to want to keep an eye on this kind of stuff, right? That, like, how many possible states can it be in? What is the variety of the system? Um, but then a cat comes along and, you know, takes a swipe at the ball and there's chaos, right? And the two guys at the tops of the poles are left, fit, like, desperately trying to get the ball to come back to a stable position. Um, it's, a, it's a fun analogy, you know? Um, yeah, if, the, if you're having a little bit of trouble uh, visualizing or conceptualizing this... Um, you can actually get this book for free on the Internet Archive. Um, just look for Designing Freedom. And uh, if you go to page uh, 14, 15, there are little diagrams. Uh, sorry, 14, 15, 16. There are little diagrams that uh, Stafford Beer drew to help illustrate this. Um, and they're really quite useful, uh, really quite useful to take a look at. So if you want to go and just quickly take a, take a look at that, um, it may help to understand this this analogy. Yeah, because um, it's it's yeah it's it's not particularly easy to understand either in text or in audio. I think um, one of the other, one of the other crucial uh, ideas here that's introduced very early is that of relaxation time, which is the the time the average time between disturbances. Uh, so you know the the cat comes along and takes a swipe at the ball and that's a disturbance, and if if they take a swipe another minute later that's another disturbance, and the the kind of thing here is that. In order for the system overall to be relatively stable, it needs to have a relaxation time that is shorter than the time between disturbances. It has to, well, it's cool down, right? Like you, you has to do its cool down period before the next problem arises. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty obvious, right? That if your um, <laughs> if your system does not come to relaxation. Uh, before the next disturbance, then you're going to have progressive amplification of the disturbance, right? Because it's just every time you go through the cycle, there is going to be more added to the system. It'll just um, get worse, yeah. Like, yeah, constantly yeah. worse. Um, the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the example continues by adding more poles, and like they're, they're all joined in the center to this thing, so you've got like 30 or 40 poles with people on top of them and, and the ropes, and they're all kind of tied together. Um, and this this is this is going to be very complex, right? Like it's a very high variety system with everyone tugging on the ropes, and the, uh, you can imagine that the the output state of the little ball at the bottom is going to be very very chaotic. Um, but our variety, our, our our institutions are like this, right? They are high variety systems, um, and the way that you get these kinds of high variety systems under control is you do variety engineering on them, uh, usually v- variety reduction, right? Like you. Um, 
you want to get it under control so you can get to a lower relaxation time. And um, there's, a, there's rather sort of like fun, um, you know, rundown of how this is usually done, like the traditional way of doing it. Um, one of the ways is to introduce hierarchy. So you, you install another set of ropes on a level above and like higher pillars that people are sitting on, you know, bosses that are like connected to four or five other people. Um, or you like restrain the system. You install new little ropes between the people so that they, they limit their, or you, you, you like put chains on them or something so that they can't move very much. Or uh, you shoot the cat, <laughs> you know, which is what a lot of institutions actually do is they decide that all these, these disturbances coming in from the environment are intolerable. We have to get rid of whatever is uh, causing the disturbances. Um, yeah, and um, uh, the three ways that Beer sort of summarizes this uh, is uh, three of the main ways by which institutions reduce their variety. Number one, a boss constrains the freedom of his subordinates. Number two, rigid connections called rules constrain the interactions of the elastic threads. And the example he uses here visually is basically what you might be familiar with from like a spider's web, right? You put you put lines in between the lines to add more rigidity to the system. Um, so if one goes up, it's going to pull against another rope, and then that will create a certain kind of stability. Um, and then number three, someone shoots the cat. The institution does not accept arbitrary interference and forces those with whom it interacts into stereotypes. Uh, and in this case, the stereotype is dead. Um, <laughs> because we can't tolerate this input. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a uh, sort of, you know, funny example. There's a poor little cat that is, like, in the picture. It's got, a, got its hind legs up uh, <laughs> in the air, like R.I.P. cat. Uh, but, um, you know, in, in real life as well, uh, this is a very common way to deal with these problems, right? Like, you know, you look at, like, uh, the Pentagon... Uh, saying like, oh, all this, you know, failed states and and uh, religious extremism and stuff. So what is the solution? Well, we'll just, you know, send out these counterinsurgency teams to kill people all over the world. Uh, drone people, right? Like those are um, actual ways that uh, institutions uh, deal with variety um, is to force people into the stereotype of dead um, yeah, um, a, a, a sort of a less extreme example sort of popped into my head as well of like, um, I think a lot of us that work in technology or in sort of businesses will kind of be familiar with like the kind of dysfunction where a business decides to get rid of its customers, basically, that like the the, the burden of uh, of having customers is too much and the, the business decides to self-immolate by making a decision that like gets rid of all their customers. So that's That's the way they shoot the cat. Um, well, yeah, it's uh, it's exactly what happened with Tumblr, right? Yeah, um, yeah, precisely what happened, like, actually. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's like, oh, well, like we we can't sort out the variety here, right? Like there is the the like uh, the sexual content or sexualized content that people want on here, and then there is also like the child pornography on here, and we don't know how to sort out this variety, so we're just going to get rid of all of it. Right. It's literally the shooting of the cat. Right. Like that is that is what they did. And yeah, they basically decided to just eliminate their user base because there's too much variety and they didn't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, this this is dysfunctional. Right. That this is um, these are not good ways to manage uh, systems. Right. Like um, 
But like it, Stafford's kind of diagnosis here is that um, the institutions we have, by and large, were set up quite a while ago for a much simpler world, and now we find ourselves in a much more varied world, um, and such that the the relaxation time is longer than the time between disturbances, right? But like the the institutions we have are in many ways just insufficient, right? Like they're they're not good enough, um, and uh, the solution that Stafford is going to outline across the next five lectures is that we that we we're going to solve this by doing better variety engineering essentially that like we need to we need to always be thinking about variety in systems and um thinking about ways we can make regulatory systems couple effectively to to other systems um yeah yeah um yeah and just like one more example that sort of comes to mind of that is like the collapse of the Roman Republic, right? Like the, there was a certain constitutional order that was set up in the Roman Republic um, way before the advent of the empire. Um, and it was able to grapple with a certain degree of variety. Uh, and there were modifications and changes made to it and, and certain uh, additions and adaptations and uh, new rules and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, but at a certain point, the variety became too much, right? And therefore, uh, even reforms to the system, uh, reforms to the constitution actually just aggravated the problem, um, until you had the Republican system collapse and the, the, the constitution becoming largely a formality, uh, and, uh, the establishment of the empire, uh, which... Yeah, which was a system that was able, for a while at least, to grapple with a uh, greater degree of complexity. And this is very much adding the boss in control of his subordinates, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, this is very much the... Yeah. Install more poles. <laughs> more poles yeah, more yeah, rope. Yeah, a higher pole. Yeah. Put the emperor up on the highest pole. Yeah. Um, um. Yeah. But yeah, it didn't, didn't work before, and it's, it's not going to work again. Um so we're going to have to come up with much better ways of uh, of managing this stuff. And um, Stafford's got a few answers for us, right? Like, or at the very least, he has tools, right? Like tools that have a kind of information theoretic or, or like mathematical basis, I suppose, to explain, well, what is the problem in the first place? Oh, the problem's variety. Well, how can we grapple with that? Well, here's, here's a toolbox. There's a couple of things in it, you know. Um, so yeah, if we move on to uh, the second lecture, the disregarded tools of modern man, we get this um, quite a nice opening where it's just a sort of defense of like um, why it's necessary to make this like a scientific endeavor. Um, that like the, the great thing about science is that it allows us to make general statements about the world. Um, the same is the same is true about institutions and organizations, right? Like and the. The science of like the, the, I love his definition for cybernetics here, right? Like that cybernetics is the science of effective organization, and that if if you're doing organization without cybernetics or something equivalent to it, you are doing pre scientific management. It's like it's like building bridges before people understood physics. Like they they could build them kinda not very well, um, but they also couldn't you know reason about what the hell was going on. You know that like each each new bridge that they would build would have to be just attempted from scratch. And sometimes they fell down because they couldn't work it out on paper beforehand. Um, that was pre-scientific physics. Uh, we are stuck in that mode of pre-scientific management uh, when it comes to managing uh, complex modern societies. Um, 
And like the argument here is that like, you know, society should use its scientific tools to redesign its institutions. You know, the, uh, we, we have these tools, but they're disregarded at the moment. Um, which is a, it's a, it's a nice, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of resonance between this and, uh, what we saw in, uh, Feenberg in transforming technology, you know, that like the science, techno science has this potentiality to create, uh, um, you know, stable, hypermodern, liberated societies, but you know, we're, we're stuck in a local minima, uh, currently <laughs> that, yes. that, that doesn't do that. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I think the important thing here to keep in mind is that, like, well, like, we're sort of delving into this talk about, like, uh, organizational uh, science, um, and that, that may feel very, like, um, kind of, like, dry business school sort of stuff, and certainly that is the background that beer comes from, right? Like, the operations management and stuff like that, that's where his background was. Uh, but really, this is all towards the end of uh, more liberated society, right? Like, there, there is a point to this. It's not just about having, you know, a more, like, a better functioning tax office or something like that, right? Like, uh, yeah. So, well, I think, something to keep in mind. I think, there's, I think there's a defense, though, for even, even the drier sort of portion of that. Like, if, if we're, I mean, the, the audience for this is socialists, right? And socialists who give a shit about technical stuff and about um organizations and things like if if you think you're going to take over the state and run it and you don't give a shit about institutions i've i've got news for you buddy <laughs> like come on yeah 100 <laughs> percent oh boy it, like it it is um, like you you need to give a shit about this <laughs> you need to <laughs> it, it, exactly you need uh you need to and um there is a link between this stuff and the freedom that we actually want, right? Like, that is the main point, is that, like, you can't simply either flail around in this very, like, pre-scientific way uh, trying to get the ends that you want uh, or just, just pretend that organizations don't matter and behave in this very idealist way about, oh, well, I wish we could just be free or... I wish that we lived in a simpler society or, you know, any of this kind of thing. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if, like, uh, all this kind of stuff. It, it's it's not going to get you anywhere. Uh, and this is these are tools for grappling with actually existing complexity uh, towards the ends of greater freedom in our lives. Yep. Um, yeah, important stuff. Very. Um, so... The sort of major thing that crops up here is uh, a bit of a clarification about variety. In that, um, like we're we're talking about like having systems that regulate other systems essentially, and that in order for a in order to regulate a system, you have to absorb its variety. Stafford's pretty particular about this word, right? Like it's 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 kind of like meeting its variety, but also kind of absorbing it, right? Like, there's, there's, there's something something in the way he puts this that's quite nice. Um, and the thing is that the, the only thing that can absorb variety is variety, right? Like, other variety. Um, and th- this, is, this is Ashby's law of requisite variety, which is pretty important and, like, foundational to Stafford's work. Um, the argument is, is essentially that, like, if, if you have a complex thing and you want to control it, you need to be as complex as that thing, kind of, right? Like, there's a bit of wiggle room there because 
There's an obvious problem in that um, if you're as complex as it, well, aren't you going to need regulation? You know, and who's who's introduced like you need a third system to regulate you, but that needs to be as complex. And like, so that that's kind of intractable, right? Like, and and also we have to keep in mind that like in reality, real systems out there in the world outside of our own skulls are like unknowably complex, like like what we got, we were getting to in um, the cybernetic brain all those episodes ago. Um, so it's, it feels intractable, but the thing is, like, if you do variety engineering, you can get close, right? Like, you can get close enough to cope with the variety coming from the system and to do effective regulation in practice. That's what we're getting to here. It's not theoretically ideal um, regulation, but it's, it's good enough in practice that you can actually steer the thing. Yes. Uh, yeah, because, of course, uh, if you just look at the law of requisite variety on its face... You think, well, in order to achieve anything, we need an infinite amount of resources, mm-hmm. yeah. right? <laughs> Which we don't have. <laughs> no. So how does anything work at all? Uh, you know, if you need variety to cope with variety, uh, feels like it's just going to be an endless uh, sort of spiral of, 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 of uh, management problems or regulatory problems. But yes, you can actually do uh, things more intelligently than just... Um, throwing more resources at the problem. Yeah. And the, um, the, the, the sort of two ways of grappling with this um, are to attenuate or reduce the variety of the system or to amplify the regulatory variety. Now, that, that, this, this takes some explaining, right? We're going to have to go through some examples here. Um, one of the examples that Stafford uses is um, customers in a store, right, like a department store. Um, and this is a very high variety interaction, right? That like the customers come in with all sorts of expectations. They have all sorts of needs, un- un- unpredictably many needs, in fact, right? Like the, the customers are high variety, uh, but the, the store has to absorb their variety somehow, right? Like it has to do it somehow. Um, for like a car dealership, one of the, the ways pe- you do that is you assign a salesperson to each customer, right? Like, so you're, you're actually matching the variety one to one, like a, a human being has quite a bit of variety, but you you atta- you attach another human being to them, and that that's what absorbs their variety, like and, and completes the sale or whatever. Um, for a department store or something like that, that's kind of not practical, right? Like you can't have hundreds or thousands of staff on the floor going around tailing each of the customers. So what you do instead is you you get clever, right? Like you at- attenuate the variety of the customers by dividing the store up into departments or splitting it into binaries. So. The customer, the customer comes and comes in, and they want both cheese and shoes. However, they don't need both cheese and shoes at the same time, so you can put those in two different departments. There's a shoe department and there's a cheese department. So that helps that the the, the store is reducing the variety they have to deal with in any, in any given moment. Um, one way of amplifying variety is to hire specialists or train the staff to be really smart and to be really effective at their job, right? Or to, uh, you know, connect and communicate to, like, amplify the variety of the, the store as a kind of regular, regulatory um, system. And then um, you have, a, an in, like, an information desk to soak up the last remaining bits of variety that if, if the thing that the person, the, the, the customer is up to just doesn't fit the mold at all, there has to be some sort of a soak, a sink into which their variety can go, which is just the information desk. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, for any of the coders and the hackers in the audience, of course, this is just exception handling, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, you have to you have to you have to have some something sort of a thing of last resort to to catch the the scenarios. Um, I like this analogy. It, it, it was I was surprised to uh, to read it. I was like, oh, actually, that that is interesting because um, there's a bit of a problem with some of these uh, these drawings where they they of of like you know systems coupled to each other with you know feedback loops um, that they're they're often drawn in such a way that you would expect it to be about systems that have a single input and a single output, you know, and it's like a very simple electrical circuit. However, this is a really great example because it's, there's, there's, there's so much going on. Like there is, um, it's a nonlinear interaction. There isn't a simple kind of, you know, in and out to it. Um, and the, the, re the regulation is complex and it's like, it's recognizably complex because it's something that's from our everyday lives and it like is, you know, analogous to the kind of regulatory stuff that you have in, um, in, in institutions we care about, right? Because, like, a, a department store seems like a very mundane kind of example, but, um, you know, you can you can start thinking about this, this stuff in terms of, um, oh, I don't know, what, whatever parts of the state, you know, manage the economy or, you know, parts of firms that have to manage internal operations or all sorts of things, right? Like, um, yeah, um, yeah, because it is... Um we all have our own particular workplaces, but it, as consumers in capitalist society, uh, we are united in our uh, experience of uh, interaction with the the productive side of the economy, right? Like we we've all we've all had that experience of the department store, um, whereas you know every little bureaucracy in the workplace is somewhat particular. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, but the, the, the thing here is that, like, if if the store fails to absorb, or if they if they fail to match, you know, requisite variety, um, it's a loss of control, which for it for a store means uh, desertion, essentially, that they're they're going to eventually go out of business. Um, for an institution like I don't know Britain's Home Office, where you don't have a option <laughs> to interact with them or not, you can't really desert them. But like, it does cause its own catastrophic failures. Um, or, you know, just extrapolate for any, any institution you can name. Um, and by institution here, we mean like state institutions and businesses and, you know, sites of production, sites of consumption, all sorts of things, right? Like we're not, we're not talking strictly in terms of one, one of these categories. It's like, if you can name an organization, these principles apply to it. Th that is the general theory here. Like, remember, like at the beginning of the chapter, general statements, that's what science is. You know, it's like, and this is, we're talking about the science of effective organization in general, um, not not just specific to any given sector of the economy. Um, yeah, uh, I think we've covered a lot of that. Um, that, yeah, that like effective variety engineering, we've got like filtering, putting into categories or like, um, you know, making making the regulatory part such as, you know, the, the salespeople and such, smarter and more effective. But either way, you're trying to bring the variety in the system you care about into line with the variety of the system that's regulating it. Uh, for, for a very abstract definition of regulation. Because you wouldn't ordinarily think of a department store as, as regulating anything, right? Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is a certain reification of their organization because there's they're a thing that we're all used to experiencing from our childhood throughout our lives, right? Uh, that, uh, you know, they've just, I mean, they've been around for such a long time and it, they all just seem very natural. But no, I mean, the actual creation of the department store in the first place was an innovation, a significant organizational innovation. 
uh, of taking various shops that were scattered all over Paris or whatever and putting them in one place together in a kind of uh, organized way, um, like intentionally organized way, uh, so as to get benefits from that organization, right? Like they're the the manner in which the department store grapples with its variety um, is in some ways more advantageous than the the previous existing uh, form of organization, which was a number of scattered shops all mm-hmm. over the place, right? Um, yeah, yeah, and and you know those those were. Those certainly uh, were able to grapple with a certain amount of variety, but the, 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 there was also a cost that was imposed on, on the consumers because of that. Yeah. Indeed. Um, yeah, so Stafford then gets back into kind of uh, complaining about the state of um, the current um, system, the way things are rigged up. And one of his um, main points here is that like the, the way we use variety amplifiers and attenuators in, in our sort of institutional systems is kind of backwards, where we're, we, in, we put the attenuators and the amplifiers in the wrong part of the loop, um, essentially. This that, is a very important point. Yeah. This is a very important point. This is, a, this is important and tricky. Um, so like one of, the, one of the examples he leans on is like computing and telecommunications and stuff that like by and large... Computers have been deployed in such a way as to make the existing workflows even higher variety than they were already, which makes them even less controllable. And the computers are by and large not being deployed in the regulatory part of the loop. So it takes an already unstable situation. Like, you know, it takes it takes the the administrative workflows of the quill pen, replaces the quill pen with the computer. And changes nothing else. You've still got quill pen administration going on, um, and of course the thing the thing flies off the fucking rails. And the the computer is so often the site of blame for things going wrong, right? That like um, it's a, I think he comes back to a couple of times across the lectures that like um, we blame the computers for the instability instead of using them to counter the instability, which is what you're supposed to do with them, <laughs> you know. Um, yes, and the reason why this happens is because using them in an organizational fashion would actually imperil uh, the existing arrangement and the existing job descriptions and prestige of the administrators who are in charge of those functions, right? So this is, you know, this is very much getting back to Feinberg and uh, this technical code, right? Like that, that, the reason the computers are not used in that way is because the technical code uh, seeks to download problems onto workers <laughs> instead of uh, actually adjusting the manner of management. Yeah. There's, um, there's an example, I don't know if it's in this chapter specifically but if it's later on where he's like saying that like from his experience in the steel mills he saw a wave of technical innovation come in and uh, you know the the managers would tell the steel workers that they were now irrelevant you know they were they were getting fired but then the next wave of innovation was the computer stuff and um the, the same managers didn't allow themselves to be made obsolete by the computers you know that like there was there had there had to still be a place for them um, so that this this is um, this is important, yeah. It, it's it's resonant with the work of Feinberg in, in uh, transforming technology, and it's um, it's part of like 
Stafford's like partial and sort of confused class analysis. Um, in 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 places he recognizes this dynamic very clearly, but in other places he sort of doesn't. Like I, I, it, he's not not the clearest of sort of um, thinkers when it comes to the class stuff. Um, but it's there. It is definitely there. Like. Um, Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, when it gets into sort of more concrete examples, he tends to be a little bit better with the class analysis. And when it gets into kind of like woolly abstractions about the public good, um, he's he, he he's he's not really quite so on point with that. Um, but nevertheless, there is a lot of like, especially if you read this stuff in terms of what uh, we saw with Feinberg. Um, there, there is a, there's a ton of useful ideas here. Um, and just to, to clarify this point about the, the quill pen administration, um, the problem with applying computers to quill pen administration is that like, you just get tons and tons of meaningless data, right? Like, like you are, you are proliferating the amount of papers and, um, data sets and uh printouts and um analytical models and all this kind of stuff um the kinds of things that people can kind of do themselves um to some degree using a pen and paper and and you know an abacus or whatever um but just like making more and more and more and more and more of that um uh and what that ends up doing is overloading the people who are supposed to inter interpret that uh, paper or that uh, data, um, and and you're aggravating the problem, right? Like because you are just producing more and more stuff to be analyzed and read, um, rather than reorganizing things so that what is analyzed is analyzed well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the yeah the the regulatory part of the, assist, the the regulatory system remains impoverished. It's just that its its job has gotten a lot worse. Um, yeah, I mean, it, but like, there's there's an interesting kind of um, it's it's a sort of negation of the accelerationist Landian sort of view of like oh you know computers everywhere networks whoa banking amazing you know foo look everything's fast now and. Beer is like nah, yeah, it is. It is very fast and very shiny, but that's bad because um, it's un wildly unstable and vastly more unstable than it was before. And that that's what that's what Nick Land loves, right? He loved the instability of it. There's there's a wonderful mirror relationship here between the, the perspectives <laughs> on the same thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think Beer is a much more sober thinker than Land. You know, he's he's got his finger on the pulse of like what the actual underlying information technical dynamics are, which is ironic because that's the thing that Nick claims to have and consistently fucks up. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Beer, Beer had a lot more experience with actually implementing and analyzing the implementations of these technologies as opposed to someone like Nick Land, who is just a, you know, academic, just kind of looking at, isolated reportage and and uh pop culture things here and there right like it is the, the the landian analysis is very like impressionistic 
of what was going on, whereas what Beer's talking about is really informed by actual experience with administrative and organizational failure. Yeah. Uh, like, remember the thing from the, the very beginning of the book, though, right? That, like, um, you have to look beyond the appearances and the apparent entities. You have to look at the actual underlying systems. Uh, Beer is able to do that because he's not out of his fucking mind on meth, right? Like, whereas, whereas <laughs> yeah. Land... La I, there's just... just Beautiful irony in this that like Land claims to be doing that to be like slipping out of the subjective position and immersing in that kind of uh, techno Deleuzian nightmare world of interconnected stuff, but he's not. He's he's just he's just taking the impressions at face value like a like a moron. <laughs> and and uh, our our boy Beer has a, has a much better take on things. I think. Um, yeah, which we, we couldn't go one episode without getting a fucking dig in against land. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, there there is no greater burn than that uh, that that graph showing like the value of Bitcoin. It's like the release of his his book on Bitcoin, like celebrating its great great triumphs, was exactly timed to coincide with the crash of the value of Bitcoin. It's like uh, it's so beautiful. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, do we have do we have much more to cover in this uh, chapter? I think we've we've got most of it. Um, um yeah, I, I I think it might be uh, just uh, a little bit useful to to read this section um, from his notes at the end of the chapter, uh, which says uh, how to use the computer according to cybernetic principles. Uh, so the the positive example, right? Uh, the public is conceived of as a system, a model of which is contained in the computer. The public supplies minimal information, which the computer then synthesizes in the model. This amplifies variety as required to help the public and attenuates variety to help the manager, thereby meeting the requirement of the law of requisite variety for each of them. So the important thing here is that the public supplies minimal information, right? This is very, very different from the way that we typically use computers, right? We, we just want to put sensors on everything, like more sensors. You know, we need, we need, like, you know, this is like the absurdity of the smart home, right? Like, oh, well, we just, need, we just need to put sensors on everything, the Internet of Things. We'll need to do that for everything. We need to have, you know, surveillance systems that just have like visual sensors and audio sensors and, 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 you know, we need to have uh, Fitbits and we need to have uh, every kind of sensor you could possibly imagine at all times in all places, collecting all types of information. Um, that is absolutely not what beer is advocating here because he has a certain degree of trust in the lower levels of the system to provide relevant information, <laughs> right? Um, that, you know, the sensor is very much a dumb pipe um, that just gets the information and then that information can be aggregated at higher levels. And that is a kind of model that appeals to a very sort of ignorant administrative mindset, right? Which, which ignores the capacities of the administered, right? Um, and what he is proposing 
and and I think he says something to the effect of this is that like we don't need the fanciest whiz bang computers. We don't need the fanciest sensors. What we need is a good model that is respectful of the capacities of each level of the organization. Um, and like, cause you know, he's saying like, well, look like project Cybersyn, which I was working on, we didn't have good computers. We had these like awful, what is it? Teletype machines, but we were still able to get things done because we, we thought about the model intelligently and we respected the capacities of each level of the system as opposed to trying to create a centralized bureau that would just collect all of the data from everywhere and then make tons and tons of very complex models that people who are completely isolated from the relevant context would then interpret, which is the general way that we seem to do these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's good. <laughs> it's really, really nice stuff. It's, um, I don't know, it, it's just so... It's so promising. It's, it's, it's promising that it's a solution to these sorts of problems that doesn't just involve more of the same. Like, of, of like, oh, well, if this massive pile of machinery is not working, we need, clearly we need tr- twice as much, you know, that, that kind of shit. Or like, oh, we need, we need even more data collection. We need even bigger supercomputers and stuff. And he's, he's saying, no, 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 no. We, a couple of computers and a smart program will perform a lot better than proliferating more and more and more variety in the wrong part of the system. Yeah, and, and I was just I was just reading an article the other day about um, you know it was it was kind of a autobiographical memoir of uh, somebody who had a soldier who had fought in you know the recent wars in the Middle East, right? Um, uh, following nine eleven, right? Um, and his sort of disillusionment with the military. And one thing he mentioned was that, like, as uh, infantry um, or just as soldiers, like, they were constantly being assigned new gadgets um, and technologies. And, like, there was a lot of churn in what they were assigned because, like, they were really just being used as product testers. Um, in order to fulfill this endless need for accumulation of technical instruments um, in order to f- to fulfill these like capitalist imperatives of all of these uh, these these uh, manufacturers, arms manufacturers and instrument manufacturers, and you need to have all this stuff happen because that's what's driving innovation in the in the consumer sector as well, right? Like it's just, on and on and on with no thought, like lots and lots of thought put into the engineering of individual artifacts, but no comprehensive sort of cybernetic understanding whatsoever, right? Um, yeah, and and it, it just goes all the way through our society. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is absolutely endemic, right? Like, um, yeah, it's just like variety being pumped into the wrong parts of, of systems constantly, and like it's inflating at faster and faster rates and we're all losing our fucking minds trying to keep up with it uh, yeah bad shit <laughs> um, Stafford does have something like getting towards solutions though uh, in the, the coming chapters um, he's going to start out with kind of like talking at the level of the state and of, uh, and at the level of the, the entire economy though uh, in um, lecture 3 a liberty machine and prototype 
Um, so we're talking about redesigning governance here. Um, and uh, there's this wonderful little phrase uh, of like liberty machines, uh, social machines that produce freedom as their output. Uh, which I quite like. Um, so we're, we're getting there, right? We're getting to this notion of like designing things deliberately to have particular kinds of outputs rather than, uh, you know, leaving it up to the market to decide or some dumb shit like that. Um, and, you know, he begins with the point that like these same cybernetic principles apply, like we, we have, these are models, right? Like they're abstracted out from systems and they, they apply everywhere essentially. Yeah, and it, he sort of begins with an analysis of, like, the problems of the current sort of way states and, like, these high-level institutions are run, right? That, like, you've... Um, they, they try to re reduce variety, but they do it by department, and the problem with that is that, like, these departments change too slowly to soak up excess variety, um, and there's a lot of variety left unmapped, right? Like, um, the one thing that jumped immediately to my mind was, like, ecology and, like, climate change, right? Like, there's vast vast variety in the world that remains completely unmapped in these um these like institutional systems um oh definitely yeah yeah and like it's it's gonna fucking kill us right like that um it's uh that that variety remaining unmapped uh, is, is is lethal uh but that's that's just one example of of i mean fucking count them like how, how many examples could you come up with of this kind of thing of like uh these institutions being unable to to map variety you know yeah, and even, like, when we have these um, enormous scientific bureaucracies and, and like, administrative bureaucracies uh, <clears throat> constructed to deal with problems like climate change, they oftentimes do fail to model properly or um, attenuate properly uh, in ways, for example, like um, making climate change a problem of carbon, Right. Uh, or even conceptualizing the problem that we find ourselves in as a problem of climate change. Like, actually, like, you know, this has been a thing this year is like people pointing out like, hey, yeah, climate change is a huge problem that we're causing. And within that problem, you can you can see the people who are criticizing the idea of the, like emphasizing carbon too much saying like, oh, well, there's other greenhouse gases we also need to look at. But then even looking at the climate change frame, it's like, well, also, we're destroying all of the biodiversity on the planet at a terrifying rate. And that is not simply because of climate change, right? So, it, like, there are all of these problems of modeling, organization, attenuation, amplification that are going on here, and we're really just not doing a good job of it. Uh-huh. Yeah, real, real bad fucking job. <laughs> um, yeah, and a, a couple of the sort of reasons for this that, like, uh, Beer lays out are um, kind of, like, really bad modeling that's, like, entity-based rather than systems-based. You know, it, like, considers um, uh, static time fr time frames. It, like, considers individual, like, say, firms and sectors of the economy in, in isolation or, you know, sectors of the world in isolation without considering, you know, complex feedbacks between them. Um, yeah, that this all that is also doubly true on the sort of um, environmental level as well. Um, aggregation, the bad kind of aggregation, stands out here as a, a really interesting one where um, he's talking about, like, totals and averages being the kind of main measure of things. Um, and it's kind of foolish when he points out, like, like it, it's a foolish way to think about things when he points out that, like, Imagine if you were a doctor and you walked into a ward and there was just a sign that said, 
over the last 24 hours, the, pati- the patients in this ward have had, on average, X temperature. And you'd be like, that's fucking useless. It's an aggregate, and it has trimmed variety in a way, but it's done it in an absolutely worthless manner. Um, yeah. <laughs> that is quite nice, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, that could be true, and also all the patients in the ward could be dead. Precisely. They've had, right. had on, on, on average zero <laughs> degrees Celsius as their temperature. Um... Worthless, like worse, worse than useless. But that's that's the main currency of how we sort of organize and uh, deal with data, right? Like that, this this kind of bad aggregation, and um, and lag, right? That like decisions are being taken out of phase with the actual systems that they're supposed to be to be managing. Um, so you have like a, a six month or year long lag between like um, the analysis of a situation or the you know the, the situation happening, and then eventually you come to a decision that's completely out of phase with you know action that's actually required. Ooh, yeah, boy. and I, yeah. I, I feel like when he talks about these, these the aggregation issue and the lag issue, uh, these are issues that you know he suggests really have technical fixes. If we if we th- if we think about them in in uh, the right way, we can provide technical fixes to them. Um, you know, for example, like uh, like oh, we can get real time statistics instead of having like you know statistics that take uh, six months to compile. We kind of saw that in um, Red Plenty, right? Like that 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 kind of question coming up, um, and uh, I think to a certain degree, or like we 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 have solutions to some of the problems that he was talking about back in 1973. Now, because we have way better sensors, we have way better communication technology, we have way better computing technology. Um, we don't necessarily aggregate very well all the time. Um, and certainly despite the quality of our technology, mm-hmm. there is a lot of administrative lag that still happens. Yeah. That's, um, that's a killer. Like, because like you can, you can collect all the data you want in real time, but if it's if it sits on a hard drive in an Excel spreadsheet for six months before it's actually looked at by whoever's supposed to look at us like that. Well, just, yeah. I mean, just to return to that climate change issue, like, look at how awful our uh, global apparatus for addressing climate change models is, right? Like, it's like, oh, the model comes out, and then years later, the deliberations have reached a certain stage. And then by then, like, there's already new data coming out, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's it's like what we um, we talked about with, uh, or, with, you know, in the uh, cybernetic brain, right? That, like... Um, these 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 sort of incredibly complex systems can only be coupled to in performance, right? That like all this, a lot of this kind of like modeling and the representational stuff is kind of a waste of time. If by the time you've by the time you've actually built them, um, aggregated all your data and you know collected all that data, that like it's, it's the thing has just moved from under you, you know. Um, but that, that, that I think that has the, I mean. The cybernetic brain has the advantage of like Pickering writing what fifty years after after Beer was writing, so that that realization is a bit closer to the surface. Um, yes, yeah. and the point about the point that Beer is making about modeling, I think, is really perhaps the strongest for us today, because that is not something you you solve with technical fixes. Of course, you can use technology to help you model. <laughs> That's always been true. 
but it seems like we still continue so many decades later uh, to fail uh, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we really do. <laughs> it's it, it's so between reading this book and reading uh, Brain of the Firm, um, it's been weird just how much of Stafford's writing feels like it could have been written last year. You know. <laughs> Um, the way he describes problems and the way he is des- particularly the way he describes inter- institutional problems and pathologies at the org- at organizational levels they're imminently recognizable today um it's like wow have have we have we not moved since he was writing <laughs> you know like it's 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 depressing that like that my my first hand experience of working in a governmental institution matches precisely his experience of 1950s, you know, governmental institutions. Yeah, a lot of the organizational forms that we find in our society were uh, either first created, like basically created in a period between like the, let's say the 1870s and the 1960s. And we have had some organizational innovations that we've come up with here and there like you know agile development right like that is that is something that's very different from the um organizational mentality of the 1950s but you know the implementation is still wanting uh relative to the preponderance of these these old uh, institutions, which are the institutions that Beer was responding to in this lecture series, and we we haven't really managed to get past them or to it like to adjust them or adapt them or you know as he will say later in the lectures, basically smash them and create uh, institutions and organizations that are sensitive to requisite variety in uh, a far more intelligent way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And like, so in the next sort of section, he moves on to like talking a bit more about like proposing what that sort of so systems would look like. And a lot of it hinges on like basically worker participation and worker control, like local intelligence, um, trusting the sort of various lev- levels of the system. Because like, I mean, who who is it that can realistically, you know, model these systems and regulate them well it's the people closest to the coal face isn't it like um the people who, who sort of know know the thing well um so it should be workers kind of building and managing these models and he, he's talking about a, re- a recursive sort of jigsaw here like going from going from the level of the individual person to the depart the team to the department to the firm to the sector to the whole economy as recursively nested uh, cybernetic systems essentially of um of these these kind of regulatory sorts um this this is a very lightweight version of what he has in the viable system model in um in brain of the firm like it's it's a very nice intro to that but um it doesn't doesn't elaborate on the actual vsm bit but that's that's the touch point there right um right and and the models that we have in inherited um are very much they come from two sources right they or i guess i should say three one is the church, right? The Catholic Church. Uh, another is uh, the military, and then the third is the factory, right? Those are those are where our organizational models originate, and those are all like uh, cross pollinating, 
between each other, right? Um, but none of those models are interested in the intelligence or capacities of the worker, <laughs> right? They're all very hierarchical, top-down models. Um, yeah. And, and, and Stafford's taking his inspiration from a very different place here. He's talking about an economy that works like our own bodies, essentially. Um, he's taking inspiration from bioorganic processes. He's taking inspiration from... Um, neuroscience and so on right like he's taking a lot of inspiration from nature to like as to what, how should how should viable systems be structured and that's kind of that's kind of where the viable system model came from right that like looking at evidently viable systems such as you know organisms and extracting lessons from them being like how, how is this thing actually structured and it's structured around local intelligence right that like your your lungs and your heart and your liver by and large just do their own thing without your conscious input um there's an automatic filtering mechanism where if, if the liver fails to do its own thing, it'll send an alert signal upwards and suddenly the higher levels will start paying attention. But that's that this kind of like fundamental notion of like leaving things, like let, letting local intelligence do its thing, detecting novelty and then alerting to, to higher levels is, is pretty integral to all this. Yes, that is the minimal information that he is talking yeah. about. And that's how you do right. variety reduction, right? Like attenuation in a realistic way that doesn't just throw away important information is that you just have the communication channel be silent most of the time, except for when the lungs notice that something is badly wrong and the nerves start to light up and it's like, oh, now now there's stuff there. So it's it's throwing it's 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 attenuating variety by leaving the variety to the local system to manage, essentially. Like, le leaving it to a lower level of recursion to take care of. And, like, I, as a higher-level system that's tasked with monitoring all these other things, I only really care when things go wrong. And that that's how you manage to couple to that system effectively, um, is that you, you have a recursive coupling of systems nested inside each other where, you know, they, they trust the level below them. Yeah, I like it. It's quite nice. <laughs> it's, um... Yes. Yeah, it's a shame that Brain of the Firm is so long because it would be really nice to discuss it on the show, but like, boy, is it long. <laughs> yeah. That is, a, that is a monster book. Um, anyway. Uh, but like, uh, Beer at this point in the lecture remarks that he's speaking with a, a lot of confidence here because he has seen it done in Chile, right, with, um, with President Allende. Um, they, they built Cybersyn and it, it basically worked, right? Like, um, and there's a wonderful bit here that like the people arm in arm with their science were to be the decision engine of the economy. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> it's, um, that is a substantially better vision of, um, of a viable society than, uh, than this train wreck we're, uh, we're occupying at the moment. Well, there's the, that nice story of, uh, beer talking to Allende, right? Um, and uh, he's showing Allende the VSM, uh, the viable system model, and showing him, like, oh, like, this is how we're going to organize the, the economy, right? Um, and there's the level one, right, at the top, the, the executive level. He's like, oh, well, this will be you, Mr. President. Um, and then Allende says, no, that is the people. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe that was a little echoed a little bit in that line mm -hmm. here in the lecture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. System five is the people. It's uh, it's a good. Yeah, it's yeah good right. Yeah. yeah. That's that's it. Yeah. System five. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is, 
the people are also system one, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> yes, we, we don't yes, have the time yes. to get too far into that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, the point here is that like it's, it, this is this is doable, but it's difficult, right? Like there are there are this is this is not a, not a trivial proposition, but it is doable, and we should really we should really set our sights higher, you know, and like actually try to do this. Um, so yeah, um, lecture four is titled "Science in the Service of Man," and. Uh, this, this one has quite a bit of resonance with uh, transforming technology, actually. Um, the argument is pretty much the same. Um, which, which leaves me to wonder, um, why, why is it that Stafford Beer is not m more well-known, right? Like, wh why, why doesn't Beer pop up on Fienberg's radar? And that's not a, that's not a dig against Fienberg. That's, like, a rhetorical question of, like, why doesn't Beer pop up on anyone's radar for this stuff, you know? Well, I remember I talked to uh, Feinberg just after uh, Ida Medina's uh, book, uh, Cybernetic Revolutionaries, came out, and he said that he had met her at a conference, um, and I think that was probably the first time he he was he encountered uh, that uh, whole story, uh, and uh, I think it. Maybe because um, the reception of Beer's work in the time that he was working on the left was quite hostile, um, which, you know, like there was there was some bad press that he got uh, in like the British left um, uh, where, you know, there were all these accusations that that he was designing a kind of tyrannical system of top down cybernetic control right um and uh it wasn't until later that that image was sort of recuperated when people paid closer attention to what he actually did um and um beyond that i think there's just the fact that beer was not an academic right He's um and like he didn't have a strong institutional basis as you know Pickering points out right in 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 a cybernetic brain like he was very much uh somebody who moved between spaces and was doing a lot of practical work um and and teaching people to use the VSM but I guess it's just uh yeah I think it I think it, it is something that fell outside of any given academic disciplinary boundary um and wasn't really picked up because it was both sort of like very practically oriented and also uh not just yeah just not academic um yeah and then in the popular press like of course he got this you know massy lecture that he got to do and stuff but he wasn't really uh, like politically involved at a major scale following this time right um so so yeah it's it's i think that really must be the thing though is that it just didn't fit into a disciplinary boundary and so there wasn't there weren't these 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 mechanisms and uh institutions to to reproduce his ideas and spread them outside of like you know the sort of uh group of followers he drew around him in in uh organizational work yeah still kind of leaves me wondering like with um i think there was that remark in the cybernetic brain that like at some point he'd uh, approached um in the 60s approached the labor government in the uk to like create a national cybernetic service or whatever national institute of cybernetics and 
Oh boy, what, what an alternate history that would be, you know? Yes, yes, um, yes. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, uh, this is a point that I, we were talking about a little bit in pre- preparing for the show, um, but he was addressing a lot of the same issues that, that neoliberals would end up addressing um, in terms of sort of bureaucratic bloat and the impression of the individual and, um, you know, this, this kind of... Uh, metastasizing bureaucracy taking over every aspect of life um uh but his prescriptions were very different from what the neoliberals had to say or what hayek had to say or whatever and i guess you know if he had had some institutional backing in something like the labor party (laughs) that might have that might have helped to avert uh you know that neoliberal direction because it was addressing a lot of the same frustrations that you know thatcherism was addressing right um his ideas were but uh didn't really they didn't really have an institutional basis that thatcherism had right like it, there there was no mont pelerin society for stafford beer's ideas yeah. um which um which sort of t- touches on another another episode of ours like the uh, when we read the uh, accelerate manifesto right like one of the calls there is to um Kind of establish what will be the equivalent of a Mont Pelerin society um, to to push these sorts of ideas. Um, anyway, like uh, the, the argument of a lot of this chapter is um, that like you know modern science as we know it like is often pretty much always used for like domination and alienation and the kind of like imposition of efficiency and so on. Like it's very much the stuff we read about in in transforming technology. Um, but that's not the you know inevitable only way of things we can have a science in the service of man instead um and it's you know he's he's against elite control of of science and technology he's he's for demystification of science he's for the kind of like uh, notion that the the people are the specifiers right like that like the science has reached a point where uh it can implement more or less anything that's specified um and that like the people at large should be the specifiers of what is implemented this is such an interesting point yeah it's yeah. really, really cool. Um, and it really gets back to the stuff that, like, Graeber was saying, right, um, in the Flying Cars and Falling Ring of Profit, is that, like, the dismal uh, circumstances we find ourselves in technologically are, to a large extent, the result of who has been specifying the direction of technological development and implementation, um, and it has not been the people. I mean, the, the, yeah, it has been, as Graeber points out, um, towards the end of surveillance. Like, I mean, yeah, I was I was just talking with a friend uh, the other day, and like, this is this is seriously not a joke. Like, this is really technology that is being developed and implemented, um, which is actual. Um, mood control of people remotely, like 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 mood adjustment, like manipulating brain patterns, so as to produce certain emotions um, and affects, and like this is this is this is like not tinfoil hat stuff. This is like actually things that DARPA is working on. This is the kind of thing that is being implemented. So like like think about. 
what Bure is saying here. It's like, if you can think about it and specify it clearly enough, science can do it. There's a certain optimism about the power of science. But you look at an example like that, like, which is just absolutely out there, right? Like, like you know, real just science fiction slash, like, conspiracy theory weirdo land, right? <clears throat> but this is actually being done because there is so much effort and resources and intention into specifying technologies of uh, management, discipline, and control, right? Because we are not in charge of the specification, because people in the Pentagon are in charge of the specification. Um yeah, it, 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 it like, I mean, it, it simultaneously goes to affirm his point, but it's also very depressing um, that like, oh, yeah, like what we have to count cope with as political activists going forward is not just tear gas. It's not just sonic cannons, which, again, is another thing that was very science fiction before, like when I was growing up, I was like, oh, this is, like that'll never happen. But then it did. Um, and. Now, like, like literal mass mind control technologies, like this is the, this is what happens when we don't have any control over the specification. So yeah, there, there's general disenchantment with the power of science in a way that seems to make Beer's words ring hollow, right? Like, like, oh, maybe like when I read the, the, that statement by Beer, I felt him a certain amount of skepticism about the power of science, right? This kind of like postmodern disillusionment, right? Like, oh, like you're just you're just too optimistic about what science can do. Like we're, you know, like we don't have that much power. But then you look at examples like that. Yeah, we don't have that go, much oh, power. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that much power, but somebody does. Yeah. <laughs> and they are bending the power of science towards these incredibly perverse ends. Um yeah, uh, and and like yeah, it, it, our disillusionment does not stem from the weakness of science so much as it stems from our own political weakness. Uh huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Oh, this is uh, this is this was simultaneously a kind of uplifting and depressing kind of read because it's like oh yeah, this this description of a you know a wonderful kind of future that we could have, and it's like oh yeah, we're still stuck here. <sighs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, moving on a bit. Um, we get to this this section kind of about like the kind of really bad style of variety attenuation that's carried out on us that like we start out from this pretty dis- disadvantageous position where like we have we have finite brains right like we have to own up to that um we we as individuals only have so much variety and that the the complex problems a lot of the complex problems we face in the world are simply unknowable at the individual level right like it's climate change is not an individual problem you're not going to fucking grapple with it as an individual, like mathematically, like we can prove it on fucking paper. Like you don't have the variety to do it. Um, but we, we cope, right? Like we, we do modeling in our heads. We do simplifications. We have biases, you know, but that's all very undirected and unscientific style of variety engineering. And it it causes kind of wild oscillations and instability in the individual. (laughs) You know, I think as, as almost everyone listening to the show will be already familiar with, um, but we, we, we touch back on the notion of freedom here, right? That like, um, in this sort of system where like we start out with a very little variety of our own, but then our variety is attenuated even further by, um, systems like education, like, you know, which enforces conformity or like, you know, mass media where like editorial decisions are taken 
at a at quite a distance from you. Um, your your variety is attenuated even further instead of being amplified. Like education should amplify your variety, right? Like it should make you an even better person, but it seemingly doesn't, right? Like I mean, you're an educator, right? Like can you can you speak to that? Yeah, I I feel this <laughs> so hard. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, oh, um, I mean, I think this is a point where beer and like Dewey definitely line up with each other. But um, yeah, like so. For example, uh, my job has been mainly teaching English, um, uh, English as a foreign language. And it is absolutely a system that is designed to produce this conformity and to attenuate. Because a major thing that I run into constantly in teaching is that people have been forced down this path of learning English in a very, like, top-down way, right? That, like... People have been so attenuated, the students have been so attenuated to just act as a recipient of the language that they can scarcely even imagine using it in any practical sense. Like, because, like, like that, that, the, the variety that is necessary to actually think about the use and uh, implementation of the language in an interaction with the world in a dynamic way has just been completely drummed out of them. And they've just been attenuated down to English equates things you study to do tests. And like it, it, it is, it is an incredible struggle as a teacher to get them to think about the language in any practical way at all. Um, and uh, yeah, that like that, that is absolutely um an example of the sort of thing that he is talking about here. And I think that people have a very similar experience, you know, to speak more generally, uh, with math, right? With 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 math. Uh people have that kind of like getting it rammed down your throat, um, completely impractical, completely separated from any kind of context, um sort of experience with math. And you know, of course, it's different because math is something that is much more abstract than English. But uh, nevertheless, the point still stands, I think. Oh, certainly. I mean, like, it is, and it's a damn shame that, like, stuff that should be empowering and should be amplifying the variety of, of people, like, and, you know, is is doing the opposite. And, like, the, the, point, he, the point he sort of winds up here with is that um, meaningful liberty is kind of impossible in this sort of setup, right? That, like, if you're... If you're starting out as an atomized individual who only has, what, 10 to the 10 neurons available, um, and then your variety is being attenuated even further by uh, these cultural, societal attenuators, how how can you realistically be free? Like, the, the bourgeois notion of freedom is kind of fucking stupid in this in this kind of system, right? Um, it just, it, it, you, you can't, I mean, oh, I'm, I'm free to wander into the gas station and buy either a Coke or a Pepsi. Well, you know, such freedom is like, it just isn't. It's, no, you're not free. I'm sorry. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it, like, you know, in my class, sometimes I'll ask students like, well, like, you know, what do you want to learn? Like, what do you, like, what, what would you like to study? What would you like to improve in your English? Um, and when you present students with that degree of variety, they're just like a deer in the headlights. 
because their entire, you know, uh, whatever, like 10 years of experience with the English language has just been about attenuating variety, right? They have no capacity to deal with any variety because they have no ways to model it, to understand it, um, and, and, and they have no experience of, of, of liberty uh, with the subject matter. Like, the basic prerequisite of are you even slightly interested in this subject is never addressed <laughs> in the education system, you know. <laughs> right? Like that is not a state of freedom. That is a state of oppression, um, and it, it is it is it is extremely oppressive to be teaching in a system like that too, because the the you feel the weight of the of the institution bearing down on you. You know, like that that like no matter what you want to do as a teacher you're a part of this system and this is what the system is doing. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely, absolutely true that, that none of this is, is a recipe for, for freedom. Um, it's not, it's not designed with freedom in mind. That's for sure. Well, (laughs) yeah. Like ring a ding ding. That's the the title of the book, right? Yeah. Designing freedom. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the, those are the sort of points that, uh, Stafford is going to try to sort of work up towards in the last couple of um, couple of lectures, right? And like the the fifth one is um, the future that can be demanded now. Um, I have a feeling that the, these last two get a bit more woolly, and I think a lot of it is because he's covering he's recovering old ground to like keep people anchored because it's been a week since the last broadcast. Um, but there's still some stuff to talk about, though. Um, one of the one of the main um, big ideas here is that like the it's about freedom and cohesion, right? Like, I mean, the, it has classically been this kind of, like, dichotomy between, well, you can either have freedom or you can have societal uh, cohesion. Centralization versus decentralization, and, and Stafford thinks that's that's a false dichotomy. Um, that viable systems operate on a blend, a very strange blend, oftentimes, of core and peripheral regula- regulation that is kind of hard to pin down as either centralized or decentralized. Um I mean, the obvious example, your own body, right? Like, it's it's a weird mix of both, right? Like, um, if, if you're thinking in terms of just centralization and decentralization, you're kind of missing something very important about how real viable systems actually work. Um, but, like, crucially, like, it, one of the arguments he makes here is that, like, the, the main, the regulatory model is going to be in some way central, right? Like, the, the, the equivalent of, like, higher brain function and such is going to be centralized to some degree, but the variety that that model is attenuating isn't simply thrown away. It's absorbed somewhere else. I think I think we went over this a couple of chapters ago. But like, yeah, that like it's it's being delegated to locally. It's not it's not that it's being thrown on the floor. It's just that it's been handled uh, closer to the source and hasn't reached the actual um, the, the the central model. Um, yes, and and the important thing here is that this notion explodes the centralization decentralization binary completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes right? irrelevant because <laughs> yeah, it, it it is assumed that um, it's it's like you have a certain amount of capacity and you can just move that to the periphery or to the core, and those are your two options. That's that's those are the two ways you can organize a system. Um, but you're saying like, no, uh, if you have this kind of recursive system, uh, like the viable systems model, it is simultaneous, like, like these words kind of lose their meaning, 
right? Because it is centralized in the sense that there is central regulation, but it's also decentralized in the sense that a lot of the work and processing and dealing with um, variety uh, is handled at the lower levels of the system, right? So, so this language of centralization, decentralization becomes kind of meaningless. Yeah. And, and also that like um, each of those lower subsystems or each of the subsystems is itself a fully viable system with its own centralized uh, like spinal column and periphery and recursively. So like it's, uh, it's that kind of recursive thing. Um, yeah, it is really the recursion that renders the concepts of centralization, decentralization quite meaningless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, I mean, the, the the present institutions we have are stuck in this fucking binary, and um, you often get this alternation between centralization and decentralization, right? That like, in uh, in one moment, a bunch of consultants come in and say, "Oh, it's too decentralized. We need to centralize stuff," um, and then they all get fired, and then a couple of years later, another bunch of consultants come in and say, oh, "Too much, too much center here. We need we need to diffuse it a bit," you know, um, and it's it's managerial psychosis. Um, you know, at, a, at an institutional level, um, and, and as you know, he says this this aggravates the uh, instability in the system, right? Because you are you are messing with the organizational form again and again and again, um, and you're not getting that uh, relaxation period anywhere. Um, yeah, so it is. Uh, Oh, well, I mean, anybody who has worked in one of these bureaucracies, like, I'm sure you understand completely how this, this works, because it, this is this is an ongoing phenomenon. It was happening in 1973, and it's still happening today. Mm-hmm. Um, we really haven't improved very much. Yeah, this is all imminently recognizable. Um, so, I mean, we need fundamental change to get out of here, right? Because these these really bad attenuators are written into the into our culture and into into the technical code, you know, to touch back on Feenberg, right? Like the the um the logic of our society encodes these kind of badnesses into it. Um but how do how do we get this change, right? This the, the next sort of question Beard brings up. Um and in, in order to really answer that, he he wants us to understand the nature of resistance to change, right? That like by and large people when you ask people about change, they're they're usually in favor of it. You know, they like novelty, you know, people because people are viable systems, they're able to adapt to things quite quite well. But it's it's bureaucracies that are unable to uh, to adapt to change or that actively resist it. And we're we're introduced to these um, these two terms. Uh, first, the homeostat. Uh, a homeostat is a system that kind of a- achieves stability, where it manages to hold its output steady. And a, a good example of that is a thermostat, actually. Uh, it you know has a certain output you know the temperature of the room it holds it steady success um, a homeostat which is ultra stable is one which holds its output steady but also holds its internal organizational structure steady also so it's it's like a higher level of stability an ultra stability if you will um, and yeah this is what kind of describes a, a bureaucracy like inside a institution like you end up with a an inner institution that achieves this kind of ultra stability for itself and it means that it's its own survival becomes the main goal of its operation um, and the original goal falls by the wayside as this um, this horrible sort of bureaucratic tumor just takes on a life of its own right um, 
And, you know, as we were saying in the, the, the sort of pre-show discussion, this is the sort of thing we see in governments all the time. Uh, but it's especially the sort of thing that, like, a show like The West Wing uh, glorifies and celebrates. Um, the the ultra-stability of the American state is really the most celebrated thing in that TV series. Um, that, like, you know, all this stuff about reaching across the aisle and finding compromises and all of the glorification of, like, how hard everybody's working on the inside and all this kind of stuff, it, it's all to serve this story about a ultra-stable administrative system that doesn't actually achieve anything meaningful for people outside of it, but is very effective at ensuring that it is smooth and capable of reproducing its own existence. Um, and, you know, certainly for a uh, liberal audience uh, who typically are people who tie their, their self-worth, their value, their life stories to a meritocratic educational system that will give access to bureaucratic institutions, uh, that would have a lot of appeal. Because when you are socialized to uh, work as hard as you can to get access to those, those upper echelons, the inner circles of this system, um, seeing that system, seeing meritocracy reflected in its operation and seeing its ultra stability are reassuring notions. Um, and, uh, when you look at it more reasonably <laughs> in, t in terms of the system as a whole, yeah. you can see that this is, this is a horror story. It's a parasite um, that is, flourishes a, at the host's expense, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and it, is, it is a glorification of that parasitism. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I mean, like, uh, I think there's one thing maybe to wor worth pointing out, that, like, ultra-stability can be desirable, like, if the system isn't pathological. Like, I think... Um... <laughs> yes, yes, no, it, it is okay for some systems to reproduce themselves. Yeah, it's, in fact, desirable. You know, this, this is the, the autopoiesis yeah. that we were talking about in previous episodes, right? That they, a system that produces more of itself can be a really good thing if it's a, if it's a good system. And that's, that's kind of what, what Stafford is trying to get us towards here, is that, like, we really need to take apart and just fucking destroy these... Um, utterly dysfunctional, uh, ultra-stable systems. And because they put up such a fight, it, you're going to have to actually kill it. Like, it, it's, it's kind of not going to be possible to reform it. Like, it's going to be a messy operation to, to get rid of the thing. But that we should be replacing them with um, institutions that are also ultra-stable, because, you know, ongoing stability is kind of nice, um, but are, don't exhibit these pathologies because we do the good kind of variety engineering on them. Right, which is to say, like, they're meaningfully recursively connected with the rest of society in ways that um, serve to uh, foster its self-reproduction uh, and and the 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 viability of individuals uh, across the social uh, structure as opposed to simply within that core administrative apparatus. Yeah. Well, like, to call back to the, the third lecture, right, the, the Liberty Machine, 
uh, the, uh, the the machine that the social machine that produces liberty as its output and is also ultra stable and holds holds itself stable so that it can continuously produce liberty as its output oh boy yeah it's good stuff um yeah, so going on to the, the final uh, lecture, uh, The Free Man in a Cybernetic World, which I think is a wonderful title. Um, a lot of this is just kind of covering ground we've already covered, so I don't feel we need to go through it in extreme detail. There's a couple of new ideas, though. Um, uh, well, one thing is that he touches on is, like, again, touches back to designing freedom, right? Like, um, design implies science and collective conscious action, right? Like, um but the freedom part is is joy and and humanity and this sort of thing like it's 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 a science for freedom not against it right like it's it's science for humanity not against it um yeah so sorry nick land uh you know capital te technology isn't going to shed its human skin we're going to have technology for humanity instead of against it you know <laughs> yes yeah exactly uh it, it's I mean, in a way, the Landian fantasy is like the West Wing ramped up to 9,000, <laughs> right? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> it's like, like, not only does it not serve, like, the majority of people, it also doesn't even serve the people at the top. Doesn't serve anybody at all. It, it's just ultra stable, and that's all it's got going for it. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> that is wonderful. Yeah. Oh boy. Um yeah, fabulous. <laughs> I I think I think Nick would be fucking furious to be compared in any way to the West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The fucking the cathedral or whatever it is he calls it. <laughs> right, oh, right. What an asshole. <laughs> but uh <laughs> anyway, um there's, there's another really good point here that, like, um, you know what? Like, science does present a threat to freedom, and that's precisely why we should engage in it and deal with it. Like, I mean, otherwise, if you don't, the threat runs wild. Uh, it's, like, scissors are sharp. You have to learn to fucking handle them. Like, this is the thing. Like, and if we're going to be, as a society, you know, big grown-ups uh, that get to play with the big scissors, then we're going to have to actually be, like, good and responsible at this. Um, so it's an argument for leaning into science rather than away from it. Um which is good because yeah, if you, if you if you don't engage in it, it's just going to go nuts and and probably kill you anyway, which, which it's it's on the path to doing at the moment. Yeah, we're, we're certainly doing a good job of that. Um, yeah, um, but we we ch we touch on planning then. Um, like, is this this term uh, unpredictive prophecy, right? Where the we we can't predict the future, right? Like, and in in that indeterminacy, we we have freedom, right? There is. Like, things aren't fully determined, right? And he's making a, a play here for, for planning, right? Which um, has taken up a bad reputation because of really shitty non-adaptive plans, such as, you know, God's plan or whatever, the, the stuff we read about in Red Plenty. Um, but that if we can do continuous adaptive planning that's, like, navigational, um, we can create the future rather than predicting it, right? You don't need to predict the future if you're able to steer on the waves of, of time and, and create the future you want. Um, yeah. And often in, um, in economics, this is sometimes talked about in like terms of like, uh, ergodic versus non-ergodic. Uh, so in, um, essentially the idea here is that like, it's a question of, can we know the future in any detail at all? Um, and if we can't, the important thing to do is to 
basically, yeah, make our future, design our future, create our future, act and and see what happens, right? But to do so in an intelligent way, uh, rather than reacting to predictions, um, right? Uh, so, yeah, this is... Um, I mean, I feel like there's definitely a whole show to be done just about this subject of, like, how do we think about our relationship to the future when we make plans or organize ourselves or do work? Um, it's, a, it's a really important question, uh, d not addressed in any depth here, but it's certainly suggestive what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, we should pick out some material to, to cover on that, uh, certainly. Um, yeah, and I guess the, the sort of last point, uh, as he sort of trails off is, um, that we need, we need bold experiments, right? Like we kind of need an experimental society, one in which, uh, science is essentially distributed and cheap. It's, it's kind of, um, non-costly, both, both in the terms of like material cost and in kind of institutional cost to, to carry out experiments. And, um... There's, there's a nice little sort of bit here as well about, like, uh, the, he, he has seen the beginnings of this in Chile again. Um, but that, you know, even then, in, the, in that situation, like, even the middle class was on side for this stuff, right? That, like, there was a sense of people coming together to experiment and to design their society. Um, I like that. There, there, in, in places, uh, Beer remarks that he, he sort of presumes that people are acting in good faith and that, like, everyone's... Uh, Got the same sort of, which which strikes me as a bit sort of naive, but I think it's it's also maybe an important corrective for um, some of the de very deterministic sort of cynicism that we get on the left a bit, where it's like anyone that makes more than ten grand a year is by definition a reactionary or something. That we have to believe in the possibility for people to change and for people to come together to redesign their society, because if we if we don't believe that, we're wasting our fucking time. Like this, you know, that's like pointless. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Uh, yeah, like that is that is very true. Um, it is it is important to bear in mind that there is room for different outcomes politically among many uh, strata of society, and in fact, you know, it's it's it's. It's perfectly possible for someone who makes 10 grand a year to be a dyed-in-the-wool reactionary, right? Like, does their class interest uh, suggest that they would be? Uh, no, but if they're also atomized and disorganized, then it's completely possible that, that that's, that's how things will turn out. So, like, there's, there's no automatic... Um, class consciousness, no automatic um, class project. And to just say, well, there is a small core of the virtuous and the rest of society is corrupt and evil um, is not only ignorant of <laughs> <laughs> the actual realities of working class life but is also furthermore ignorant of just the variety of social experience um and yeah it, it it very much feels like a retreat to a kind of 
fantasy land. I think I think in many cases it's a it's a comforting fantasy for because um, I, I see a lot of this on the sort of some for some leftists right that like the the belief that like essentially the project is hopeless that like oh well you know you can't convince the middle classes they're just reactionaries and all this kind of shit and it's like I think it's a comforting fantasy to believe in some kind of determinism because the the as 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 Stafford remarks here right like it's it's in indeterminacy that we find liberty right like that's that's the wiggle room that allows for better futures however. Facing up to that indeterminacy is also kind of scary, and I, I think I've definitely encountered people for whom uh, the comfort of determinism is is worth more to them than the possibility of a better future, uh, which fucking blows. <laughs> like, get out of here with that shit. <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> yeah. 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 Um, oh, absolutely. And yeah, like I I I understand that. Like you know, I I mean. I've certainly had my moments of clinging to determinacy just because even, even if it is a dismal determinacy, it is nonetheless something to cling on to. And I mean, that that's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a characteristic response to abuse and we live in an abusive society. So, I mean, it is, it is unfortunate that people fall into those patterns and it's understandable they do, but that doesn't make it good politics. No. And you know what, we we can do better, right? Like this is one of the the messages that Stafford is transmitting to us here, loud and clear, is that this this is possible. It can be done. And he he signs off with um, the remark that uh, men have always navigated those unfathomable waters, and we can do it now. Yes, this this is doable. Um, it's hard, but it's doable. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, um, this guy had just got back from his big huge multi-year project being crushed by a fascist coup. Yeah, his friends were shot or exiled um, or imprisoned um, and uh, everything he'd worked on had just fallen apart. And if he can muster that kind of optimism uh, in the face of that kind of shit, um, well, I guess it's kind of incumbent on us to find something similar. Uh, Yeah. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this this read. Um, real good. Yeah, um, yeah. It, like I mean, as we've said, it it kind of suffers a bit from coming from some lectures on radio in the weird format that they had, but um, <clears throat> a lot of interesting ideas here. Um, Beer always has some good turns of phrase. <laughs> uh, oh no, hold on! We, well, before we wrap up, I have to find that bit. Um, <laughs> oh gosh, is this the the angel thing? No, the um, oh the fucking <laughs> the one about things that'll destroy society. Um, oh yes, ooh, yes. Boy, where the hell is it? Um, but, 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 there it is, right? So, like, I mean, he, he has these wonderful turns of phrase, and he, he's he's a flair for drama and. Um, but like, there's this wonderful bit where he just says, like, every time we hear that a proposal will destroy society as we know it, we should have the courage to say, thank God, at last. <laughs> yeah. <fuck>. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's like it's 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 really fascinating. Right. Because uh, I mean, absolutely. Like uh, what he, he's making a revolutionary statement there. And because, you know, what he's saying is that the institutions we have, they may do us some good, but generally they're shit. They should be destroyed. Right? <laughs> we should be fucking glad they should that be they're destroyed. destroyed. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, that, 
that has been a fundamental insight of the communist project for a good long time <laughs> now. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's quite... It's also quite interesting because it's very, um, in a way, very similar to Thatcher's attack on society, right? In later years, this, this you know, this is seventy three. This is not yet Thatcherism, um, and you can see how a lot of the support that Thatcherism got uh, came from a reasonable place, right? Uh, that there was this real frustration with institutions. There was this real sense that bureaucracy was out of control. Um, did Thatcherism do anything at all to help with those problems? Not at all. No, of course not. It, it, it not only did it not destroy society in any constructive way, in fact, it reinforced the worst parts of society. Um, but... There was a similar problematic that that beer was working in and that the Thatcherites were working in. Um, and it's a shame that we got that answer to the problem rather than beer's answer to the problem. Um, but, you know, the point nevertheless stands when, you know, people are talking left, right and center all the time right now about populism, populism, populism. The hoi polloi are getting, you know, restful. Um, you know, the, the yellow jackets are out in the streets burning the Champs-Élysées, right? Um, and I think, you know, there, there are, I've seen, I mean, this, I'm sure this, this episode is going to be dated, uh, <laughs> when it is released. I mean, March or but something, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it is, um... I've seen a lot of people just sort of instinctively look at those protests and look at the populist movement and say, oh, well, of course they cannot be trusted. They must all secretly be fascists. Um, it's like, no, what you're scared of is the indeterminacy of these movements. That You're scared of the fact that they are expressing legitimate problems in the society in a way that isn't decided how it's going to turn out, Right. Uh, we, you know, you can end up with something as as a result of these sort of protests, like uh, the election of Bolsonaro, right? It came out of a very similar sort of protest movement that escalated, escalated, escalated until you ended up with a fascist in power, right? Um, and that was not purely a result of the popular movement, but the fascists were successful in infiltrating and operationalizing that movement. And a similar thing could happen in France, Right. It could. But it doesn't mean it's decided. Right. And it, it's a similar, similar situation to beer saying, you know, uh, whenever we every time we hear a proposal uh, will destroy society as we know it, we should have the courage to say, thank God at last. And Thatcher saying there is no society. Right. Like that was an indeterminate moment um, and it went the wrong way in the similar way to the way that things have gone in Brazil. But it doesn't mean that the matter is decided. And every time something indeterminate happens, you just shut yourself off and say, oh, they all must be fascists. Um, because, like, what kind of revolutionary are you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? well, like, if you're not leaning in, right, like, if you're not engaging, they are all going to turn out to be fascists. Like, it's, it's going to, like, there's, there's this, this, this hopelessness and this cynicism that just isn't fucking productive, right? Like, you, you can't... 
when the rupture you wanted arrives, lean the fuck in. Come on, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because... I, I, I mean, I have news for some people, but revolutions are indeterminate. Uh-huh. <laughs> they are moments of chaos, right? Like, the, 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 it, these happen in moments of chaos. They do not happen in a predetermined way. It's only they seem that way when you read a, a historical synopsis. Um, but, yeah, it, it, like, we've got to deal with indeterminacy, and this kind of cybernetic understanding can help us in that. Yeah. And I mean, courage is the operative word in that in that sort of statement that Beer made, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> gotta have the courage mm. to say, "Thank God at last." Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, this this um, this mode of organizational cybernetics, I think, is extremely extremely promising. And um, I mean, I, I I think it's the way forward. You know, <laughs> like it's um, yeah. yeah, it's good stuff. Um, yeah, is there anything else we should? cover before we wrap up i don't think so cool we got it uh thanks listeners for coming along on this one um it's all as you know as always it is appreciated uh if you'd like to ca- keep up with us uh you can follow us on twitter at gi unit pod uh, we're on facebook as general intellect unit uh we're on the web at generalintellectunit.net. um all the podcasting apps subscribe all that kind of crap uh but the best way to the two best ways to help us out are to uh, share us around with people you think might be interested in listening to this kind of thing. And the um, second best way is to go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and uh, throw us a couple of bucks a month to uh, pay for books and hosting and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, but thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks with another episode. Bye. Bye.